Thank you, uh, praise team. Thank you for the music. Appreciate your gifts and your willingness to serve and lead us in singing uh, to this beautiful God. I thought I'd start with a question tonight. When was the last time you heard me read the text? So it seems like a legitimate question. When was the last time the word joy uh, crossed your lips? When was the last time you used the word joy in a sentence? And I guess principally I would ask you in a non-Christian, non-scriptural context. Um, I remember back in the mid-90s when I was still in business and I uh, was preaching on the side and uh, the Lord led me to do a sermon on, on joy, this pervasive theme in the Bible of, of, of joy. And so I thought I would do a survey uh, of people that I ran into that day. I, I, I talked to colleagues. I talked to co- uh, vendors. I talked to um, my boss. I talked to the guy at the Taco Bell drive-in. I asked them the same question. When was the last time you used the word joy? When was the last time joy came across your lips? And of course, uh, the women did far better than the men. The men uh, were really p- quite pathetic. Uh, I think they thought it was unmanly to be joyful. Um, some of the men would finally, you know, gag something out about their family. But the women did pretty well. Can you, can you guess what the women said? Any of you women, can you guess what they said? Their, the birth of a child and or their wedding day. So they did much better than the men did. The definition of joy is a condition of or a condition or feeling of great pleasure, happiness, and delight. And I was surprised when I looked at the, uh, some of the synonyms for the word joy, and I found one I did not expect to find, and it means a lot in this sermon. Um, the word fruition was there. The word fruition, I looked it up. Fruition means the agreeable emotion that accompanies the expectation, acquisition, or possession of something desirable. So essentially, fruition means completion. Which I think, in a biblical sense, makes a lot of sense. I think this is the essence of what the word joy means as it relates to the believer in Scripture. There's a sense of fruition. It's not simply circumstantial happiness. There's a sense of fruition, a sense of completion in coming into relationship with the living God. Biblical joy is much bigger than mere happiness or momentary pleasure or, again, circumstantial happenings. Um, Most of humanity if they ever get close to anything that we would talk about or use in the same uh, context as the word joy, uh, it would be based only on circumstantial, circumstantial happenings. But the Bible's using the word in a much deeper way. Does anybody know the New Testament letter that is called the Epistle of Joy? Does anybody know? The Apostle Paul wrote it The Apostle Paul was in jail in Rome when he wrote the epistle 
of joy. It's the book of Philippians. It's called the epistle of joy. The man who wrote it is in prison. The man who wrote it is subject to capital punishment. The man who wrote it is being slandered in the church at large. This man, whose circumstances could not be much worse, he wrote the epistle of joy in the New Testament. Do you, do you, are you starting to understand? For Christians, the word joy has almost nothing to do with our circumstance. It has everything to do with who we know. With who we know and who we love. So the joy God offers to mankind in the Bible is much bigger than a circumstantial happiness. It is about fruition. It's about completion. It's about coming into relationship with Christ. So, we have this perfectly good word in the English language, the word joy that is almost never used by humanity at large. Again, as I said earlier, joy is a pervasive theme in the Bible 500 times. Uh, if you do a word study, you'll find the word joy, rejoicing, or delight. And I love how Paul said it to, first, to Timothy over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. Paul calls God the blessed God. <laughs> so what, what's a synonym for, for blessed? What is it? Happy. The happy God. Did you know this about your God? That He is an infinitely happy God. As we've been saying over the last few weeks, He's a, he's a full God. A God of infinite exuberance. A God of complete and utter and total satisfaction, fullness and happiness. We need to have this biblical view of God. Many who call themselves Christians um, have a false view of God. They do not see Him or know Him as a happy God. And certainly we understand the Bible reveals that uh, God is a complex God. He has many attributes, one being wrath, and His wrath will be poured out, as we know from Scripture, on His enemies in the last day. But God is a happy God. God is a full God. God is a joyful God. American preacher John Piper, he says it like this. I've shared this with you before, but I've got to share it with you again. Talking about uh, the God of the Bible, he says, Our Father's heart is full of deep and unshakable happiness. And we can be sure that when we seek our happiness in Him, we will not find Him out of sorts. We will not find a frustrated, gloomy, irritable Father who wants to be left alone, but instead a Father whose heart is so full of joy that it spills over onto all who are thirsty. Don't you love that picture of God? I'm going to read that last sentence again. We will not find a frustrated, gloomy, irritable Father who wants to be left alone, but instead a Father whose heart is so full of joy, it spills over onto all those who are thirsty. If you read your Bible with only superficial comprehension skills, you understand that God is an infinitely happy God and all that He is and all that He does is awash with joy. Ergo, in Matthew 13.44, when the man becomes a Christian, it's full of joy, right? <laughs> you, know, you can't 
hold down the joy of a born-again Christian. Uh, again, I, I, I submit to Paul to you. Paul in prison who writes the epistle of joy. Creation was awash with joy. Job 38, 7. Uh, when God said, let there be the morning stars, they sang together and all the sons of God, they shouted with joy. Redemption was driven by joy. Hebrews 12.2 For the joy set before Him, Christ endured the cross. Eternity will be overflowing with joy. Psalm 16.11 In Your presence is fullness of joy. In Your right hand there are pleasures forever. So if God is like this, if God is full of joy, and all the created order originally was full of joy, why aren't we full of joy? Why isn't mankind full of joy? Why isn't the creature known as man full of joy? Someone tell me why. Why? Sin. Sin. Amen. Jeff? Sin. Quite simply, we exchange the truth for a lie. Romans chapter 1, right? We as... Jeremiah says, we have forsaken the fountain of living water and hewn for ourselves fountains that can hold no water. Cisterns that can hold no water. We've been talking a lot about it the last few weeks. God says, here I am. And mankind says, not interested. Why is there a lack of joy on the planet? Why is there a lack of joy sometimes even in our redeemed hearts? I think Jeff said it pretty well. Sin is rampant in the world. And even as born-again Christians, we still struggle with the sin that is in our lives. I like how Jesus said it in John 15.11. Jesus says, this is an awesome thing. <laughs> If this doesn't make you want to go home, lay on your face and worship God, I don't think you're paying attention. Or I don't think you're understanding my English, which sometimes is not good. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy, Jesus speaking, my joy will be in you. How big is the joy of God? Someone tell me. How big is it? It's infinite! Right? It's infinite joy. This is the kind of joy God is offering to mankind. All of His joy becomes His people's joy. Amen? This is why the guy in Matthew uh, 13, 44, this is why from joy he goes and sells all that he has that he might possess this treasure. Who's the treasure? Capital T, treasure. Who's the treasure? Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus says, I'm giving you my joy. He says, here I am. Isaiah 65.1, God says, here I am. Jesus says, here I am. No, i got better things to do. I'm more interested in my career. I'm more interested in my relationship. I'm actually more interested in my own self-aggrandizement. I'm more interested in my fame. I'm more interested in my money. I'm more interested in, 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 in my, my new possessions. Do you see? We've been talking about this over the last few weeks. Do you see what an insult this is to God? 
The God who created you and gave you everything you have and everything you ever will be, it's by His good and gracious and merciful and benevolent hand. And we say to God, I'm not interested. Do you see the insult? Do you see why no man will have an excuse before God on the last day? God has stood there and said, here I am. I refer you again, Isaiah 65, 1. God says, here I am. He says it twice, here I am. Here I am. And you're not interested? Beloved, Jesus is giving us His joy. <laughs> it's not just happiness because of circumstance. It's completion. It's fruition. It's, what the guy, it's what's going on with the guy in, in Matthew 13, 44. He's found the thing that completes him, right? It's what he's been looking for all his life. He's found it. It's Christ. He goes and he sells all that he has that he might have this field. That's the parable. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. True biblical born-again conversion, it's all about the joy. I like the way C.S. Lewis talks about it. He says, it's the kind of joy that makes you serious. <laughs> right? Now, obviously, the man in, in Matthew 13, 44, he's serious about this treasure. In fact, he's more serious about this treasure than he is anything else in his life, right? Isn't that how it is with you and Jesus? Isn't that how it is with you and Jesus? You're more serious about Him than anything else. Everything else comes two, three, four, five, six down the list. He's first, right? Lewis says, we are joyfully serious and seriously joyful. Amen? I love that. I love that imagery. So tonight as we look at Matthew 13.44, it just seemed like the perfect complement to what we've been talking about. Again, this mini-series I've stumbled into regarding the deep and emotive and visceral characteristics of genuine Christianity. We've talked about several weeks ago that the true Christian is seeking God. And oh, guess what? God, is, God allows us to find Him. Secondly, we talked about the fact that the true Christian desires God. And oh, guess what? He fills us up with Himself. Last week we talked about the true Christian who worships God, who, who, who has that heart doxology going on and that doxology is spilling out into our lives. We are full of wonder and awe. And last week also we talked about giving ourselves away to this God. And you remember, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit enamored with this Eugene Peterson paraphrase of Romans 12.1. You remember it. Peterson says, this is what you do. This is what Christians do, right? He says, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering, right? That's what we've been talking about for the last week or so. We love this God. We seek this God. We desire this God. We worship this God. We give ourselves away to this God. It's biblical Christianity. We give ourselves away. Our life is an offering to Christ. Ultimately, beloved, that's just biblical truth. 
I'll just stop and ask, is your life an offering? Is that how you're living? Is that how you're conducting your professional life, your family life, your leisure? Is it an offering to God? You know this is what the Bible is saying to us. Is your life an offering to God? Why do Christians give their lives away to God as an offering? Why do we do this? Because we're good little boys and girls? We're, we're, we do it out of religious guilt? Because we ought to? Because we should? Is it because we, we think there's some inherent virtue in self-denial? Why do men and women fall in love with Jesus and give themselves away? Why do they do it? What, what does the text say? Because we found our treasure, and in our treasure is our joy, and in Christ is our fruition and completion. I have discovered why I'm here. I think it was in one of the songs. The Holy Spirit picked the music because part of the sermon, if not about half the sermon, was in the music, was in the lyrics. Good job, Ratio. Because he didn't know where I was going tonight. C.S. Lewis, you may recall a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that he said mankind's desires for pleasure, they're not too strong. Do you remember? He said mankind's desire for pleasure, it's not too strong. It's too, what, weak? Do you remember why he said that? <coughs> because he says, you know, fallen man is fooling around with sin when he could have God. Right? You're fooling around with sin when you could have God. Your desire for pleasure is way too weak. You've settled. You've settled. When God says, here I am. God says, here I am. And you say, no, I want this little thing here. I want this little dusty thing here. I want this little dusty thing that's going to pass away. Right? This is what I want. I don't get to keep it. But I want it right now. Soon I'll die, but I still want this. I want this more than I want you. It's the confession of a fallen man down through the history of the world. Beloved, it's never wrong to seek your pleasure. It's never wrong to seek your pleasure, but it's always wrong to settle for anything less than God. We've been talking about this. Are you a Christian hedonist? What is the definition of a Christian hedonist? Your deepest pleasure is God Himself. So, have you settled for some small, sugar-coated substitute? Or are you pursuing Jesus Christ? Real Christians, born-again Christians, Bible-believing, word-doing Christians, real lovers and followers of Christ, we are hedonists. Jesus Christ is our deepest pleasure. We've said it the last two weeks, but I have to say it to you again. You remember what Moses discovered? Oh, it'd be cool if somebody could remember. I'll give you a Twinkie. Well, 
maybe not everybody knows what a Twinkie is. Does everybody know what a Twinkie is? Maybe a lollipop. <coughs> what did Moses discover? He discovered, he discovered that God created Moses to fill Moses up with God. This is what we, this is what we learn in the Bible. <laughs> God's giving Himself to His people, right? Moses has learned that God created Moses to fill Moses up with God. God says, here I am! As I've told you many, many times, you get as much of God as you want. How much of God do you have? How much do you want? Are you seeking God? He commands it over and over and over in the Scriptures. Seek Me! Seek Me! Seek Me! And He says, I will be found by you. No man will have an excuse on the last day. I didn't know. I didn't know. No man will have any excuse. No man will have an excuse. God says, here I am. Come and have me. Have all of me. I give you my joy. <laughs> he says to His people, I give you my joy. Is what the Lord says. And I think this, is, this takes us back to the, the text. It's Matthew 13.44, it's true conversion. You guys know the context here. I trust that um, Jesus was going through the, every city and village in, in uh, Galilee proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. He's traveling with His disciples. He's traveling with Mary Magdalene, Johanna, Susanna, and some others. A great multitude gather around Christ. He steps into a boat, backs off uh, the shore just a little ways, and the people are, are gathered there on the shore of the lake, and he begins to teach. Now, if you look at Matthew 13, you realize early in Matthew 13, verse 3, it tells us that Jesus began to speak many things to them in parables. Now, why is he teaching in parables? Why is he teaching in parables? You know, you always hear it said, well, he's teaching in little farmer stories so everyone can understand. Well, that's not actually what the Bible says. Actually, Jesus says when the disciples come and say, why are you teaching in parables? Jesus says, Matthew 13, 10-15, Jesus says, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Verse 13, while hearing, they do not hear or understand. Verse 14, they see, but they do not perceive. Verse 15, the heart of this people has become dull. They have closed their eyes. So Jesus is teaching in parables. It's both a judgment and a mercy. A judgment in that they would be kept in the darkness that they love and a mercy in that any more exposure to truth would only increase their condemnation. So Jesus begins to speak in parables. You know, I'll say this. It's uh, not a good idea to, to trifle with God. It's not a good idea to hold God at arm's length. That's what these people were doing. They wanted to get what they could get from Jesus, right? Bless me, heal me, feed me. But they would never give their hearts to Him. Beloved, this is a dangerous thing to trifle with God like this. I, I think if we trifle with God, we have no concept of who He is. 
or we surely would not trifle with Him. We would not play a game with Him. What did the writer of Hebrews say multiple times? Today, if you hear the Word of the Lord, repent and believe. Today, if you hear, repent and believe. So, we have in Matthew 13, we have uh, all these parables about true faith and about, about conversion. And so we land on this one verse parable here. I'll read it to you again. Chapter 13, verse 44 of Matthew. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. There's a principle of interpretation when you're, when you're studying the parables. And that is you don't press the details too far. You, know, you can get into all kinds of crazy things if you press the details of a parable too far. The principal issue in, in a biblical parable usually is one main point. So what is the main point? What would, you, what would you guess is the main point of this parable? I've already told you as I've been talking the last few minutes. What is the main point? Jesus is the treasure. And whatever it takes to have Him, you must do it. That's the point. I don't want to get off on side issues. <laughs> That's the point. Jesus is the treasure. And the man who's met Christ will happily give all that he has to have Christ and more of Christ and more of Christ and more of Christ. It's like Moses. Moses figured out, I was made for God. And the man, the man in, in 1344 here, he found God and he realized, I was made for God. I must have God. I must have all of God I can get. Amen? You know, I've told you last week, I've never understood, you know, this kind of arm's length Christianity. They, you know, you, you keep God right here. You know, you, you, you call yourself a Christian but you're keeping God right here. Beloved, if, you, if you're keeping Jesus over here, you haven't met Him. You can't meet Christ and keep Him over here. <laughs> you can't. You won't! You've met your treasure. You've met your joy. You've met, the, you've met the one for whom you were created. And there is not simply joy. There is fruition. There is completion. Amen? There is completion. I was made for Him. <laughs> I was made for Him. And I won't settle anymore for sin. It doesn't mean we don't sin. Of course we do. We're in the fight. We're in the Romans 7 fight with sin. True Christian sin. But we hate it. We're not settling for it anymore. Our eyes are on Jesus Christ. And we're hot on His heels. I say it to you a lot because it's true and I love it. Jesus Christ is better than anything life can give. And Jesus Christ is better than anything death can take. That's what this guy knows. And so I'm going to ask you, do you know it? I'm asking you, do you know that's true? 
that Jesus Christ is infinitely better than anything this life has to offer. And Jesus Christ is infinitely better than anything death can take from you. Do you believe it? Born again, born again Christians believe it. And they live like they believe it. Their whole life is ordered on the premise, the presupposition that Jesus is my treasure. And then everything is subordinate to that. Amen? Everything, everything is subordinate and subservient to that principle. And it's true, isn't it? Treasure is always in the eye of the beholder. What someone values, someone else doesn't value at all. And we know this is true. We value Christ. Most of the world does not. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. It's really an affair of the heart, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the affections of the heart. So, what's in your heart? Your treasure, you'll find it. It's in your life and it's in your heart. It's not a secret to people who live with you. You might be living under some delusion or illusion, but it's no secret to the people who live with you and know you well. They know what your treasure is. And make no mistake, God knows what your treasure is. He knows full well if it's Him or if it's some stupid little sin or some stupid little worldly accomplishment or earthly bobble. The Lord knows. I've shared this text with you the last couple of weeks. I'm going to share it again simply because it, it's a perfect commentary on Matthew 13.44. You guys know the text, Philippians 3.7-10. This is the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. He's chained between two Roman soldiers. He, he might have his head chopped off at any time. He's being slandered in the church. Paul says, I don't care about any of it. Right? <laughs> he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him that I may know Him. <laughs> it's, Jesus is Paul's treasure. Jesus is Paul's pleasure. Amen? Jesus is His completion. It's what every born-again believer understands. Jesus is my completion. I was made for Him. And He stands there and He says, Here I am, Jim. Have all of me that you want. Beloved, again, I just want to say that this is why Jesus Christ hates lukewarm Christianity. Because He stands there and He says, Here I am! Have all that you want! And people who call themselves Christians, people who call themselves by His name, they could care less! Oh, maybe, maybe a little time on Sunday, right? Oh, if I have time, if I'm not traveling, if it fits my schedule, I'll come in on Sunday and tip my hat to God, right? Listen, beloved, if that's your attitude, God's not interested. I'm just telling you the truth. God's not interested in that. It's repugnant to God that you would think of Him in this way. We don't come in here to tip our head to God. We come in here because we love Him. Because we need Him. And we want to be changed. We want to get rid of this sin in our lives. Right? We want to, have, we want to get rid of this worldly chatter in our head. We want to hear what God says. 
Man, I want to hear what God says. I don't care what Jim says. Who cares what Jim says? Does God say it? Does God say it? God says, if you know me, you have found your treasure, you have found your pleasure, here I am. <laughs> this, is, this is Matthew 13, 44. You know, Paul, Paul writes this beautiful text here in Philippians 3, 7-10. through 10. You know, he's not a health, wealth, and prosperity guy. He doesn't really care about the blessings of God. He just wants God. Amen? This is the problem, one of the problems, one of the many problems with health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preaching. They've exalted the blessing above the one who gives the blessing. Paul's not into that. Paul says, I want God. God. He says, by comparison, everything else is dung. That's what the text says. And so I thought of a, an example. And uh, I... Uh, thought of, you guys know the story, you guys that were raised in the church, you heard the story of Zacchaeus, right? Uh, if you want to turn with me over to Luke 19, uh, verse 1, Luke 19, verse 1, um, Jesus comes into Jericho and Zacchaeus, he's a, he's a tax collector, he's, he's very rich, he's a chief tax collector, and he wants to see this Nazarene, this guy who does miracles, verse 3, but he's unable because He's so short. So he runs ahead there in verse 4 and he climbs up a tree, a sycamore tree, in order to see Christ. Verse 5, Jesus came to the place. He looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Verse 6, and Zacchaeus hurried and he came down and he received Jesus gladly. Verse 7, of course the Jews grumbled because Jesus was was going into the house of a sinner, verse 8, and Zacchaeus stopped and he said, Lord, behold. Okay, wait. Okay, here's the Matthew 13, 44 part, okay? Watch this. Lord, behold, half of my possessions I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Okay, the only reason a Jew is a tax collector, why, the, only, the only possible reason a Jew would be a tax collector is that he loves money more than he loves the good opinion of his brethren. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was at the top of a corrupt pyramid and he was living off the sweat and the hard work of his brethren. He loved that money. He loved it. What, was the, what immediately happened when he met Jesus, right? What immediately happened? That's not my treasure anymore, right? He said, I'm giving it away. This is what happens. This is what happens with biblical conversion. And Jesus says in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. What a beautiful example of Matthew 13.44. A changed heart, right? Zacchaeus has a new treasure. He has a new pleasure. He joyfully repents. He joyfully makes restitution over and above what the law requires. It's not about money anymore. It's about Jesus, right? It's Matthew... It's Matthew 13, 44. It's about fruition. It's about completion. It's about joy. We talked about it last week. It's about peculiarity, right? 
What did God call us? If you read the King James, eight times in Scripture, my people are a peculiar people because I'm their treasure, I'm their pleasure, I'm their joy. Amen? And these people who love God like this, they do a lot of peculiar things. We talked a little bit about it last week. Abraham left his home not knowing where he was going. Sarah, who was way too old and way too barren, believed and she conceived. Moses took on the most powerful nation in the world with only a staff in his hand. Gideon and his men went on the offensive outnumbered 450 to 1. Mary of Bethany worshipped Jesus with a year's wages worth of perfume. The widow gave her last cent. Matthew left his career. Peter left his business. Paul left his religion. The, the list is endless. Matthew 13.44 is true conversion. I have a new treasure. His name is Jesus. This is what we talked about Thursday night at Young Adult Bible Study. You know, if it's real in here, and Christianity is always inside out, right? If it's real in the heart, what happens? Anybody remember from Young Adult Bible Study? If it's real in the heart, what happens? It spills out. It spills out in your life. It just does. It's what we see in Zacchaeus' life. It's what we see uh, the man in the parables. It's what we see in his life. It's what we see in uh, all these people I just listed off. It's what you see in their life. Their treasure, their pleasure, their joy, it spills out of their life. God is my treasure. God is my pleasure. God is my joy. I mentioned it to you earlier, but let me just reiterate because I want you to understand this. You know, it, it's, it's an oxymoron. A, a joyless Christian is an oxymoron. It's just an oxymoron. You remember what the angels said to the shepherds when they came? They said something like, I bring you good news of marginal joy, Right? I bring you good news of great joy. Your Savior has come for you. All that God is, all that God does is awashed with joy. I said it to you earlier. God created in joy. The created order, it's brimming with joy. Let me just give you a couple of verses just because I love these verses. Job 38.7, the stars and the angels shouted for joy. I think I shared that with you earlier. The sunset, the hills, the meadows, and the valleys, they shout for joy, Psalm 65. The seas roar, the fields exalt, the trees sing for joy, Psalm 96. The rivers clap their hands, and the mountains sing for joy, Psalm 98. The created order is permeated with joy. And Jesus says, in Hebrews 12.2, For the joy set before Me, I endure the cross for My people. John 15.11, Jesus says He's giving us His joy. And Psalm 16.11, Eternity will be overflowing with joy. Do you understand why it's an oxymoron to say you're a Christian? To say you're in relationship with the living God and have no deep and profound joy in God? Do you understand? It's an insult. Because all that God is and all that He does <coughs> is a wash in joy. 
And we dare not call ourselves Christians. I'm not, listen, beloved, I'm not saying that we don't struggle and we don't have hard times. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we don't weep and we don't cry and we don't have really, really hard times. I'm not saying that at all. But you remember what Paul wrote? I can't remember now. Someone tell me if you know. One of you biblical scholars. I can't remember what book it's in. Maybe it's Corinthians. Paul says, we are sorrowful, but what? Always rejoicing. Can you rejoice? I, I, I was sharing with the young adults uh, Thursday night. I read, a, I read an example of some pastor's real story here. Uh, a, a man in his church was dying and and his, his wife was attending to him. He, he, he had cancer. He was in his 50s. And, and uh, a friend came by. And this woman, obviously the man was dying just, just then. The man was dying at the, at the moment. And this wife was beaming with joy. And this visitor was quite offended. Was quite offended at this display of joy in this woman's life. And this woman said... My husband deserves hell, but he's not going to get it. He's about to step into infinite joy. In the presence of his God, who holds pleasures forever in his right hand. Obviously, this woman would enter into a time of grieving and mourning, obviously. But at that moment, she was joyful for her husband. Because he was about to step into the presence of his treasure and his pleasure and his ultimate joy, right? And she was happy for him. What a great testimony. What an unbelievable testimony. So the man here in Matthew 13.44, he says, or the text says, for joy over this treasure... He gives up all he possess, all, all to possess it. It's a picture of true conversion. A treasure, is, a treasure is born, a pleasure is born, a joy is born, and a son or daughter of God is born. It's the kind of joy that sets you free, right? It's the kind of joy that makes you fearless. It's the kind of joy that enables you to go out into the world who... Yeah, is not really overly interested in hearing about your Lord and Savior, but, but, but you're so full of joy, you can't help but go out in the world and make much of Jesus, right? Even if the world persecutes you and shuns you or fires you, you can't help it. We understand Jesus does not call us into domesticated Christianity, lukewarm Christianity, heart dead, brain dead, apathetic, lethargic, rote, obligatory, dutiful, pseudo-Christianity. He's calling us into a life-altering relationship with Him. It's what's happened here in Matthew 13, 44. Satan doesn't mind if you sit in a dead church your whole life. In fact, he's happy for you to sit in a dead church. Nothing's going to happen in a dead church. He's really happy if you'll just be a church member in a dead church. He's really happy. Because you're not going to do anything. <laughs> you don't have any joy. You don't have any... 
you don't have the kind of joy that sets you free. This is the kind of joy that we're talking about. A joy that sets you free. You're no longer intimidated in the world. You are free to be what Jesus saved you to be. And I just want to quote from a book soon to be published written by a man who pastors one of the smallest churches in the world. Let me quote it. He says, he writes, it's deliciously true. We don't have to become disciples to be saved. We have to become disciples because we are saved. That's really how discipleship works. It's not so much something we decide to be as it's something we discover that we are becoming. If you're born again, I don't need to explain it. If you're not born again, I can't explain it. Jesus Christ has invited us into the uncareful life and we discover an urgent longing within to accept His invitation. It's not about religious duty or ecclesiastical guilt. It's about desire. It's all about that once dead heart now beating, now living, now seeing, now loving, now worshiping, now dreaming, now singing, and now dancing. It's what we talked about last week. Those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. Of course people think we're crazy. <laughs> that's, that's your resume. That's on your CV. Peculiar, right? It just says peculiar on your resume or your CV. Of course, we are fully aware of the hard sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. We know full well what He said. We know it. We get it. We know what He said. We know that He said, Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 34-37 Jesus says, My people love me preeminently even more than family. We know Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 16, 24-25 Jesus says, My people have a love for me that is greater than a love for self. We know that Jesus said, No one of you can be My disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Luke 14.33 Jesus says, My people love Me more than stuff. We know He said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated Me first. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John 15, 18-20 We love Him over and above. Security, comfort, and ease. We know He said this stuff. It doesn't matter to us. Because we have God-sized joy now resident in our hearts. The kind of joy that sets you free. The kind of joy that makes you fearless. The kind of joy that turns you into a courageous disciple. We know what the guy in Matthew 13.44 knows. It's not simply about some kind of superficial happiness. It's completion. I found Him for whom I was created. 
And he says to me, here I am. Have all of me that you want. Beloved, Christianity is an awesome thing. It is an awesome thing. Don't you dare let anyone ever compare it to some pseudo-false world religion. Christianity is a breathtaking thing. And this guy in Matthew 13, 44, he knows what Moses knew, what the psalmist knew, what Paul knew. It's about desire. I'm just about done. When the nominal Christian, the, the pseudo-Christian, the superficial Christian, when he hears these hard sayings of Jesus, you know what he hears? He hears loss. So I'm going to ask you, test yourself. Did you just hear loss when I read those hard texts? Did you hear loss? You know what the true believer hears? Yeah, I get it. Because He's my treasure. He's my pleasure. He's my joy. I get it. Yes, I get it! I get it! When I hear the hard sayings of Jesus, I hear gain! I hear gain! Because He's so awesome. <laughs> He's bigger than any temporal pleasure. Amen? We hear gain. So this man, Matthew 13.44, he's giving himself away to Jesus. He's radically investing in the kingdom of God. I mean, what right-thinking person invests in this this temporal world that's passing, that's passing away. What right-thinking uh, Christian would ever invest heavily in this? I can't stay here. I don't get to keep this. In fact, God says it's going to burn up. Why am I going to invest here? Jesus says invest there. Let your treasure be in heaven where no thief, moth, or rust can destroy. Where are you investing, beloved? Where are you investing? Are you like the guy in the parable? Have you found your treasure? Have you found your pleasure? Have you found your joy? Are you investing in Jesus? True Christians hold everything in this life loosely. Okay, here's the deal. On the one hand, the temporal hand, the Gospel is a call to give up all that we have for Christ. We're willing to do it. On the other hand, the eternal hand, the Gospel is a call to receive all that He has. All that He is and all that He has. you see it? In a temporal sense, we may lose everything. But in an eternal sense, we've gained it all. We've not lost one thing that matters. It's what the guy here in Matthew 13 understands. He happily exchanges the worldly life for the eternal truth. He happily trades his anxiety for divine assurance. He happily exchanges lukewarm religion for born-again discipleship. He happily, happily trades temporal pleasures for eternal treasure. He exchanges temporal dust for eternal glory. I've said it to you a million times. Christianity is no part-time pursuit. We are either all in or we are not in. It's just the truth, beloved. You're either all in or you're not in. You either love Christ like this Matthew 13.44 guy 
or you're just playing church. I mean, it's just the truth. And I love you too much to play games with you, to play games with your soul. I love you too much. When you come in here, I'm going to push you right to the wall and make you hear things that maybe you don't want to hear. You know why I do it? Because it's my job. <laughs> and because by the grace of God, I, I love you enough not to pat you on the head and say everything's okay. Don't worry. You came to church. I'm glad you're here. I want you to come every Sunday. I want you to bring your friends and your family and your colleagues. But beloved, every time you come in here, eternity's at stake. Eternal things are at stake. You know, C.S. Lewis, and I'm done. C.S. Lewis, uh, he, uh, he, he likens God to the sea, right? And, and he compares mankind to timid swimmers. Now listen to this and I'll be done. C.S. Lewis says, Many go down to the sea, but they neither dive nor swim nor float. They only dabble and splash, careful not to get out of their depth and holding on to the lifeline which connects them to all the safe temporal things. He says, but of course that lifeline is really a death line. It's not so much of our time and so much of our attention that God demands. It's not even all of our time and all of our attention that God demands. He demands us! He wants us. He says, here I am. Okay, that was my insert. That was my paraphrase. But Lewis continues, while he will be infinitely merciful to our repeated failures in our pursuit of him, I know no promise that he will accept our deliberate compromise as we pursue other things above him. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. I want you to understand this. I'm going to say it again. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, Jesus claims all. There is no bargaining with Him. It's either the Matthew 13.44 thing or it's religion. So, it's up to you, beloved. It's up to you. Do you want the Matthew 13.44 thing? Or will you play religion with God? I exhort you, dabble and splash no more, but swim in the deeps with Jesus Christ. Real Christians seek Jesus Christ. They desire Jesus Christ. They worship Jesus Christ. They happily give themselves away to Jesus Christ. They are Christian hedonists. They will not settle for anything less than Jesus Christ. He is their treasure. He is their pleasure. He is their greatest joy. And their life smells like it, beloved. It's Matthew 13.44. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this text. We thank You for this truth. Father, maybe some here that have not loved You like this You are not their treasure. You are not their pleasure. They uh, are distracted with something in the world. Lord, I pray that You would grant the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to repent. For while we still draw breath, that we may fall in love with You and give ourselves away. For You are true treasure. 
You are infinite pleasure. You will be our joy forever. So Lord, I pray, drive this truth home for us. Lord God, we want to be all in with You. If we've been deceived, if we've allowed something in in our lives to deceive us, if we have become distracted with something in the world, Lord, I pray that You would convict our hearts about it. We want to be like this guy. We want to be like this guy in Matthew 13.44. We want to be like him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Shall we sing?